0: Thank you for joining me today. This is Colin Hamilton, Commodities Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. And welcome to our short Metals Matters podcast where we highlight the key things you need to know in global metals and mining this week.
1: Hi, I'm just back from mining in Daba and a big thanks to everyone who attended the presentation or sessions I participated in or attended the BMO reception down in Cape Town. Uh, there's nothing better than catching up with great people and some boards helps as well for those of us residing in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, I'm going to give you five short takeaways from my discussions down there. So number one, for many of us, particularly those of us in a developed world bubble, we hear a lot about China and China's dominance of supply chains being a threat. For African miners and African governments, China's investment is an opportunity and something they want to be a part of. And China gets stuff done, well, others talk about doing stuff, and that's pretty good if you're in an emerging market. China is a partner to Africa, and in a number of ways beyond mining. I also note, interestingly, that some of the largest stands at the conference were from the Chinese mining equipment firms, showing that exports into emerging markets still remain pretty strong. Secondly, talking about getting things done, Do, Big Iron Ore Mine in Guinea, so winning the company, kind of fronting if you want, China's investment in Simandu had a fantastic video on its stand. For all the people out there who think uh, the mine isn't really happening, you should try and see this video. Huge rows of concrete pillars in place for the railway, uh, plans for the future investment in the port, big focus on how it was employing and empowering local businesses. And Dab also saw passionate presentations on this topic from the minds ministry about how this could be transformational for that region of guinea uh well at least according to my basic french um so it's coming and it might actually be held up as a benchmark for how china can add value to west african iron ore after the 2010-2011 false start when we get a first door could be as early as next year but realistically 26-27 is when we see that ramp up number three Every mining company you would meet would say at least once, oh, do you know it's the largest ever U.S. delegation at U.S. Mining in DABA. Lots of excitement around that. And there is no doubt the U.S. is getting much more serious about securing raw materials. We did see some infrastructure spending announced as well. We're really only seeing the initial steps in terms of action. Uh, There were lots of mining companies complaining about a lack of funding options. And I would argue that, given it is a cyclical sector, the funding model probably still needs to change a bit, I, um, I believe we might need to see some caps and calls on realized prices to de-risk projects and that would get some stuff done provided the capital costs are realistic, which is undeniably a bit of a problem still in the mining industry. And number four, supply cuts still required in certain commodities and in some of these were in a bit of a who blinks first type of scenario, Every miner would point to someone else having to take the hit, and I would say for that, and particularly for South Africa, the PGM sector is perhaps front and centre of that. Balance sheet's been bolstered by the past couple of years, there's a high chrome war price that's providing someone with tailwinds, the sector which seems intent on a long battle to destruction, rather than one making rational decisions about near-term capacity. Also, interesting to see the... Palladium price dropping below platinum for the first time since 2017 I think this week and um, that is uh, a function of Palladium price falling rather than platinum price rising. We also talk of uh, big cobalt stockpiles perhaps more to come from Africa in 2024 in terms of lithium supply. I still argue the energy transition trend is fine and um, China new energy vehicle sales up 79% year on year in January and, and low prices are helping end demand. But from the raw material side, certain areas clearly have too much capacity for now. Uh, lithium or cobalt ETF, anyone? For the fifth one, well, one market where we did actually see physical ETFs emerge after overcapacity was uranium. And that has certainly helped the price. Never underestimate the entrepreneurial side of the mining industry, though. As far as I could see there were more uranium developers at the one to one conference I attended than for any other commodity. The attendance at that conference does tend to move around with what prices are doing. I suppose keeping on the theme of uranium, the past couple of weeks have seen another recent record for uranium prices. If you look at a year-on-year price move chart for the major commodities under our coverage, it's frankly ridiculous. Gold's a little bit higher, Most, are lower year-on-year, uranium's up about 100%. So, what's happened recently? On the demand side, or at least the demand sentiment side, we've seen nuclear power officially labelled as strategic for the EU's power sector decarbonisation. We've seen the European Small Modular Reactor Industrial Alliance launched. In Japan, well, Japan added uranium to its critical minerals list, which makes investments eligible for government-backed funding. Of course, Japan has no real domestic uranium resource. It does have a bit of inventory, though, um, around 6,600 tonnes uh, U, That's about six years of demand at present, according to the country's Ministry of uh, Economy, Trade and Industry. But in a market where it does take a while to build a to react and these are long-term strategic plans, I think we will see some overseas investment, perhaps from the Japanese trading houses. And we'd also expect to see maybe some additions to enrichment capacity to reduce dependence on Russia and China. Um, on the demand side we've also seen the restart of the Palisades Nuclear power Facility in the US and Palisades operator Holtec International has also announced it's developed a combined nuclear solar plant that is entirely carbon free coupling a small modular reactor, with a solar thermal system and a green boiler which can store heat. Um, it's interesting to say that on the, on the press release around this, it could fit on existing coal sites and reduce the natural intermittency from additional solar generation. This is something we talked about a lot last year around the World Nuclear Association Forum. We see some pretty strong potential for this to be deployed, not only across North America, but also other markets with aging coal-fired power plants. Finally on demand, a flag that Hyundai has uh, announced a study into nuclear's use in shipping. And again, we, this is something we also think is a good case for some modular reactors. But many of these are all longer term. It's really been the supply side which has generated more excitement. Because uh, atom problem sidens for 2024 was 14% below previous high-level targets. And given the challenges we're seeing to ramping up production this year, now appears unlikely that the 2025 subsoil use agreement target can be met. So, we're looking at a forecast of about £23 million for Uranium in 2024, and that shrinks a little to £7 million in 2025. I can certainly appreciate why Uranium has reached these current price levels, but still hard to underwrite an above $100 per pound Uranium price as fundamentally justified at the present time. I discussed copper at length in the last Metal Martyrs, but I wanted to give an update given the importance of any copper price move to the wider sector. Of course, I'm being asked a lot why the LME price hasn't moved yet. It's because Chinese purchasers have been heading off on holiday for Lunar New Year, while tighter credit liquidity at this time of year means that inventory holdings are typically depleted. Then, and it can be four to six weeks after Lunar New Year, the buyers call in the market increases again. And that's when the raw material tightness transfers into a tighter refined market. Let's talk about the precedents here. Periods in the past when copper TCs have dropped below $30 a ton. So June 2009 uh, the initial recovery from the the GFC. So three months after the spot TC dropped below $30 a ton the copper price rose 24%. But that was about Uh, $1,200 a tonne at that point November 2011 so three three months after the TCRC fall prices gained 11% or about $900 a tonne and in February 2021 we saw a 20% gain that was over $1,600 a tonne in the three months after TC's fell below 30 TCRCs fell below 30 and 3 so the precedents clearly point to a decent copper price gain over the remainder of Q1 close things off, I wanted to talk about a really interesting data point my team pulled out of the massive splurge of Chinese data for 2023 as a whole. So China's got about 5,000 registered coal enterprises all in all, and they produce over 4 billion tonnes of coal. So 36% of them, that's about 1,800 companies, were loss-making last year. 2015, which is when we saw the Beijing government somewhat panic about the coal industry, only 34% of firms were losing money. But if we put it in context, last year the 5,500 Kcal coal price, FOB Kingang Dao, averaged about uh, 966 RMB per tonne. That's more than double the 2015 average level. Yes, long-term contracts were settled at prices perhaps below this, but even so it implies the cost structure the Chinese coal industry has moved up more aggressively than thought in recent years. There are three things I'd like you to think about regarding this. The first is obvious. We perhaps need to be thinking about a a through cycle price that reflects this cost inflation and that would be higher than previously envisioned and potentially makes the NDRC official price range somewhat impractical. The second is that if this is happening in coal, it's probably happening in other commodities. China is a marginal supplier of a number of raw materials, zinc, iron ore, zinc, bauxite. But perhaps we need to look at the short-run marginal costs of these differently. And lastly, my big worry is still the quality of loan books at Chinese banks which are undoubtedly deteriorating. At some point we might have to see some supply-side reform, consolidation and reflation to fix these and stop this perennial losses in some of these industries. Actually, there's one more very important thing I want to flag. At BMO, we are very proud to once more be sponsoring the 100 Inspirational Women in Mining this year, published by Women UK. This is the fifth consecutive edition we've been involved with, and each time you hear the phenomenal stories of women all across the world who are making a real difference in the mining sector and are role models for future generations. Nominations are now open for the 2024 edition, and for someone you would like to put forward, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It be done at www.womeninmining.org.uk forward slash WIM100. Thank you for listening to Metal Matters. Please join me again in a couple of weeks for a special preview of BMO's 33rd Global Annual Metals, Mining and Critical Minerals Conference, And also keep an eye out for a one-off special I've recorded with Rodawan, CEO of ICMM on some of the good things the industry is bringing to global society.
0: That was Metal Matters presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Metal Matters on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more episodes, including our other podcast series, BMO Equity Research in Tune. If you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please do share it with me at colin.hamilton at bemo.com To access our full disclosures, Please visit Research Global forward slash public hyphen disclosure.